Hi, Nina. How are you? I am great. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for uh, coming to this podcast. This is a One Humanity Community podcast. And people from all over the world might be listening, watching on YouTube and uh, hearing your insight, your experience and the work you are doing. So without further ado, let me start with, can you please tell me a little bit more about yourself? In general, <laughs> I, know I just, it's, it's, yeah. just turned 70. There goes a lot, lot there. So let me, let me edit this down. Um, in light of the fact that we're talking about environmentalism and sustainability, uh, about, um, I guess, uh, almost 18 years ago now, um, I was doing community rabbi work. I've been, I was ordained as a rabbi in 1988. I was when the first class of my denomination uh, that or was ordaining uh, women as rabbi. So I was delighted to sort of be part of that pioneering group. Um, and I was delighted to be a community rabbi. But around the year 2005, 2006, um, just around the time Al Gore was putting out his you know, movie and Inconvenient Truth, I also you know, felt that there was this uh, awakening that sustainability was the critical existential issue of humanity that was you know, facing all of us. And I wanted to, as a rabbi and as a person of faith, um, work in that arena to advocate for greater practices of sustainability and environmental um, sort of wisdom. And um, I found that the my faith community and other faith communities had not yet fully engaged in sustainability issues. So I uh, quit my job <laughs> so that I could focus full time on teaching myself about the issues that were facing uh, the earth and, and learn how I could better communicate those issues. Because I had been teaching about that for a few years, even before I, I quit my job, but I was finding that I wasn't capturing the audience and capturing the hearts of the people I was teaching as I wanted. And so I thought, well, maybe there was something wrong with me and how I was teaching. Let me just, you know, learn a little bit more about it. And as I learned a little bit more about it, I realized that there was this whole school that was emerging about how does one message the challenge of climate change? How does one message, you know, the 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 the, the challenge of, of the lack of diversity and 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 just the, all of the challenges that we had regarding sustainability. So I realized it wasn't just me. <laughs> this is a hard message for people to grasp. And we were really asking for um, changing our, in the Western world, changing our relationship and our attitude toward nature and how we engage nature, how we consume it. Um, how, do we, how do we dispose of that which we have already used? Um, so I've been spending the last 18 years or so um, continuing to educate myself, trying to um, talk to others and bring them along. Uh, working in advocacy as well. So that's that's what I've been doing the last 18 years or so. Wonderful, Nina, wonderful. I'm really impressed with the work <laughs> you are doing. Uh, you are the co-founder and director of MDEHR, Maryland Environmental Human Rights. Please tell me a little more about uh, this organization. Why did you establish? What motivated you? So I want to hear more about it. So, you know, as I was um, 
talking about environmentalism and sustainability as I was getting more involved in the advocacy world, um, I was hearing several things, two in particular that stuck with me. One, that despite the 40 years or so that we had been working on sustainability issues, essentially people market from Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, that sort of grand awakening in the 1960s. So in the 40 or 50, by then by 50 years or so that we had been working on sustainability, we had not been making the progress that we needed to make. We were not moving at the speed of the need. We were moving maybe at the speed of um, what was feasible and politically acceptable, but that's not the same as moving at the speed of what nature and the earth needed. People were saying that we need um, better tools, in particular, better legal tools. And so I was, so I was listening to that and saying, how do we, what sort of better legal tools could we use? And I was also hearing that we were not engaging all the communities that were in fact impacted by uh, climate change and environmental degradation. And we needed to engage um, those communities more and provide those communities most impacted with the capacity to fight you know, for their rights. Um, so I was sort of casting about for the intersection of additional legal tools that we could use to promote our environmental progress faster and ways to engage and, and empower those communities, enable those communities to be empowered um, who were most impacted um, to protect themselves. And um, I bumped into the David Suzuki Foundation of Canada to you know, give credit where it was due. David Suzuki Foundation in Canada was in fact trying to create, and I think they're still trying to create a national environmental rights amendment for Canadian constitutions. And that sort of opened up this whole world to me. Oh my goodness constitutional provisions that establish a fundamental right for all humanity to a healthy environment. So what a wonderful idea. And I did some research here in the 1970s, five states in the United States created such uh, provisions in their constitutions, either as either as part of a, a constitutional um, convention and rewriting their constitution or as an amendment to their constitution, saying that everyone had a fundamental right to a healthful environment. Um, over, depending on how you count, um, anywhere between like, you know, 90 or 100 or so countries around the world have some sort of provisions protecting the rights to a healthful environment for their, for the residents of their, of their countries. And I thought, wow, well, this is Maryland. We're, we're a progressive state. <laughs> this could be that overarching additional legal tool that helps us move even faster um, if we simply put in our constitution this fundamental right, which we clearly all believe that we have, you know, it's a birthright we have to a healthy world. No one is, no one's saying that anyone has a right to destroy and degrade the world, especially in somebody else's neighborhood. So I thought, wow, this would be something that we could really get our arms around, all unite around and get this amendment placed in our constitution. Really, that would just be so compelling for everybody. Okay, well, that was seven years ago. <laughs> that, that constitutional provision is not yet um, in our constitution, but the Maryland Campaign for Environmental Human Rights was created to advance that concept that everyone has a right to a healthful environment and that that right should be embedded in our constitution as part of our Bill of Rights or in the state in our Declaration of Rights that said that and ensure that everyone had the right to protect that right to a healthful environment. So that's what the uh, that's what the organization was designed to do.
when I read about um, the action, the work you are doing on that website and on the team of the people you have, it's very impressive. Uh, I would say, I think we need more people. Uh, I imagine if there are more Ninas, people who come together um, as, a, as a one community. As you said, Maryland is a progressive state, but still there are so many things to be done. Yes. Uh, in Hindu religion, uh, we worship a river. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, we worship river. We worship any many natural elements. By the way, you know, I I, lo I learned when I was four or five year old. My grandparent, my mom said, you know, never ever make the river which was which is flowing nearby my house. Never ever even drop a any pollutant in the river. You know, this is sacred. Mm -hmm. and, and same thing, when, when cutting trees without any reason, that, that's not right. How does your religious faith align with environmental advocacy? You know, I wouldn't even say it aligns with environmental advocacy. I would say that it is just, it bursts with, you know, it requires <laughs> okay. you know, environmental mm -hmm. advocacy. Um, one of the things that... I needed to do, and I began began to say, okay, as a rabbi promoting environmentalism, you know, how, what what is my what's the grounding in my faith? And I must say, it wasn't until just a few years ago that I really found the answer with the help of my my husband, who with me wrote the um, sort of the founding uh, the founding document for establishing why our movement should focus on sustainability as the highest priority. And one of the things that we found as we were looking through our sacred texts uh -huh. um, is a statement that says the very first mitzvah, the very first commandment um, that the Bible, the Torah gives us is the commandment to create a habitable world. Shuv ha'olam. That's it. And and the and the the sage that says this says, and everything else depends uh -huh. on that. Which of course is true, but I didn't learn that in Hebrew school. I didn't learn that in rabbinical school. It wasn't. Um, what happens is that as issues bubble up, we often see them in our in our in our tradition when we might not have seen it in our tradition when that issue didn't wasn't wasn't a live issue. And for you know until the two hundred years ago or so, environmentalism you know wasn't really for the Western world and Western religions you know the the, the focus of religion. But over the past certainly 50, 60 years as environmentalism became, as we said before, sort of a, 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 an existential challenge, and we needed to find what does our religion say about it? So, um, you know, the Catholic Church, other Christian communities, and certainly your tradition even more, I think, earlier than, than our awakening, you awakened to that, you, you were in, embracing that. But over this past few years, we've discovered, again, it, hiding, in, as we say, in plain sight in our tradition, this vision that the very first calling, the very first commandment, the very first responsibility of humanity is to make sure that we treasure and take care of this natural world and make sure that it is habitable for all creation. So everything stems from from that. Um, and 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 as as that as that rabbi Sefer Hachinuch rabbi said, you know, and and yeah, everything else depends on that. So. Um, it's funny because when I first began speaking about environmentalism, sustainability, and Judaism, I was asked that question, like, I don't understand. What are these two things 
have to do with each other? How do you blend sustainability? No, I don't have to blend them. It is Mm. fundamental to who we are. And Mm. once you understand that, then everything else, how do we, how we grow food, how we, how we, how we do do our transportation what energy we use, how do we throw things away? If we even should throw things away, we shouldn't even throw things away. We should have a system that, you know, recycles everything. And, you know, how do we, how do we manage anything should become a question that we ask ourselves. There is a um, a German Jewish philosopher in the mid 20th century who looking forward at technology and what technology would do and the potential of the damage that technology would do to the world asked us a, a simple question. He says, we should all ask ourselves, is what we're doing consistent with establishing the permanence of life? right? The permanence of life. And we should not pursue behaviors that violate the call for us to contribute to the permanence of life. If we do things that destroy life, um, then that's something that is wrong. If we do things that contribute to the permanence of life, then that then that is right. Um, so it was Hans Jonas was his name. And, and I think those are some fundamentals that gu- should guide us and certainly speak from a Jewish perspective. Very insightful. So, uh, Nina, um, I think um, some of the issues we are facing as a one humanity, um, for me, climate change is one of the biggest issues. In your opinion, what is one of the biggest challenges we are facing as one humanity and what we should do? what action we must take. I think about that a lot. <laughs> and here's here's my answer, which might I which might sound facile at first, but I think if we unpack it, it's not at all. Mm-hmm. Um and I would sum it up as um we've lost the value of hospitality. Meaning we are all guests on this earth. Yeah. We forgot what it means to be a guest. We are here temporarily. We do not have the rights to consume something to um, to, it, to to the end which destroys them. We don't have a right to take what we are not, in a sense, given permission to take. And I understand mm-hmm. there are lots of ways we have to understand who's giving permission, who has the right to give permission, what is nature, what does it mean when nature might give us permission to do that? But the sense of hospitality that we are guests and we have to live on this earth as guests, knowing that others created this home for us that we are now guests in, and that others will come after us as their as guests also. And you know, you have to leave this place no worse than you found it. We actually have to leave this place better than we found it, given yeah. the condition we found it in. So on the one hand, we have to understand what it means to be guests. And on the other hand, we have to understand what it means to be hosts. And how do we manage the world when we do need to be able to exercise some control over the environment? So we also act as hosts, welcoming in the resources of the environment and how do we use them well? And how do we live in the presence of each other? You know, guest and host linguistically um, are actually the same word. It goes back to one word where the guest and host is a is a bonded relationship. 
Mm. And if we truly understand what it means to be guest and what it means to be host and, and the demands that that makes on us in how we use the physical and natural resources of this world with the humility of a guest and a gracious responsibility of a host, I think that would change the nature of our relationship with each other and the natural world. And I think once we get that spirit right, then we will have the will and the capacity to make the decisions that we need to make to put this world, you know, right and healthy. So yes, we need the technology, right? Yes, we need to make some of those changes. Yes, we need to do, you know, LEDs and electric cars and electrify our, our transport system you know, and, and, and solar. And we need all of that. But in order to do all of that, we have to change the human spirit. And if we remember that we are all guests and we are all hosts and what is the most gracious way that we can be that for this generation and those to come, I think that will get us on the path that we that we need to get on to do the, to make the right decisions. Wow. Sometimes I feel that on this earth, we came here just to be here forever. Meaning... We are here consuming everything possible. Over-consuming is not based on need, but based on our wants. As mm -hmm. you know, wants are never, never fulfilled. Right. <laughs> if people would understand the understand or act on the some of the insight, some of the wisdom you provided, I think this world would be a better place. That's the key. Um, you you nailed it, Nina. I'm thinking about my children and their children and maybe their children's children. How do you portray our Mother Earth, Mother Earth's future picture, Nina? So after 50 or 100 years, what do you, what do you think would happen? Um, so. I tell you why I love that question, because while we're fighting to get an environmental human rights amendment in our constitution, we know that might take a little while. And then even when we get it in our constitution, it will take a while for the courts to work through what that means and how would it get implemented. Um, so that, that needs time to unfold. And in the meantime, we may need to make decisions today. There's another structure that I am now beginning to work on with a couple of high school students, as a matter of fact. And the structure is focused on what the phrase is called intergenerational equity. That is understanding that the decisions that we make today will affect the lives and the well-being of generations tomorrow. And um, there are some countries that have begun to institute and look at creating a position called the Ministry of Future Generations or an Ombudsperson for Future Generations or a Mission for Future Generations, a Ministry for Future Generations, whatever it might be. But what this does is create an official position, an mm -hmm. official representative, as it were, to speak on behalf of future generations so that when laws are proposed, just as any law that is proposed today has to have a fiscal note attached to it so that lawmakers know what would be the um, financial impact of passing this law. They don't always answer 
get an answer as to what would be the financial impact of not passing this law, which is a very good environmental question. But nonetheless, at least they have that, that fiscal note attached to it. We want to say you should not be able to pass a law and you should not be able to develop new regulations and policies without knowing given our best guesses, how that decision you're making today is going to affect future generations 25, 30, 40, 50, you know, 80 years from now, as best as we can project into the future. And the United Nations in this coming year, 2024, is going to spend um, a lot of time focusing on what does it really mean to create these spokespersons for future generations and embed them in governmental structures. So I am hoping that we can start a conversation here in Maryland so that maybe every county and certainly the state will have these ombudspeople for future generations who will be tasked with casting a glance forward. And there are methods for doing that. Science and technology has created that. Casting a glance forward and saying, if we make this decision, if we do this in the watershed, if we do this to the dam, if we do this to our transportation system, if we make this sort of energy choice, if we make this choice about our agriculture, if we make this choice about our landfills and all, these are the potential repercussions, the likely repercussions and impacts that it will have on your children and their children's children. So know today that what you are voting on today is not just gonna be of concern to your contemporary constituents, but what's coming down the pike. And you will be held morally responsible for the choices you make today. So someone's got to put that knowledge before our lawmakers so that when they make these decisions, they know the impact and they can't claim ignorance. Um, and so I think that I don't know, I'm not one of those people <laughs> see into the future, but I do know that there are methods and scientists who have ways to project. That's how we know the climate change was coming 30 years ago, and, and now it's here. So how do you project into the future and be responsible for making a decision today that it makes the decision today appropriate for not just today, but for what happens in the future? And I think that, again, bringing that, bringing that voice of the future which otherwise does not have a voice and does not have a seat at the table today, bringing that into the contemporary decision-making conversations is really critical. And I think there's an easy way to do it because Wales has done this. Hungary, surprisingly, has done this. Other, other countries have done this. The United Nations is looking at methods to help us all do that as well. And I'm real excited about that. Very powerful, Lena. All right. So I think this is, I call rapid fire round. It's kind of only one sentence or one phrase. <laughs> you may not <laughs> explain it. Um, so, but you can skip it if you, you know, don't okay. like to answer. Uh, so let's do that. So what is one piece of advice you would give to your 18 year old self? Oh, I guess speak up more. <laughs> Great. What is one piece of advice you would give to someone starting out in his or her career? Uh, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Um, it would be two things. One, my family and the you know the love that. I give them hopefully and that they and they give to the world spread out to the world um and seeking to protect this earth 
for future generations. One thing you would really change if you had a magic wand. What would, would you change? I would create that open-hearted feeling of appreciation for being a guest and a gracious responsibility for being a host in every person. Wow. One thing you enjoy most? Um, conversations like this. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> Um, Nina, I'm very grateful uh, to find you as a guest and uh, I'm really glad you managed your time to join this podcast. Before I end, I would ask you any final word that you would want to say. Just if, if your viewers, your listeners are moved um, by the, the cries of the earth, um, just Speak to everyone, speak to everyone about it. If we don't talk about it, people don't think it's an issue. Talk about it. Don't berate them. Don't, don't badger them, but just let them know how important this is and help them cast their minds forward to what tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow will be if we don't do the right thing. Just share that vision and that concern with others. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Nina. Again, I'm very much grateful. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for this invitation. Thank, thank you, you for your work.